This is Sam Swartz and Maria Brunetta with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. OPEIU employees at True Stage, formerly known as CUNA Mutual Group, have decided to pursue negotiating this week rather than continuing a strike. The approximately 450 workers represented by the union have been on strike for more than two weeks and filed nine charges of unfair labor practices against True Stage. So far, the two parties have come to an agreement on remote work policies and job security, but other thorny issues remain. The union and management will meet at the negotiating tables tomorrow and again on Friday, but union leadership warned that if negotiations stall, they may have to go on strike again. A national group dedicated to keeping public confidence in the elections process says they'll launch a branch in Wisconsin, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Similar branches from the bipartisan group Keep Our Republican have already opened in two other key battleground states, Pennsylvania and Michigan. The group, which solicits members from both sides of the aisle, will have former Governor Tommy Thompson and former Lieutenant Governor Barbara Lawton among their advisory council. In previous states, the organization had focused on canvassing voters to certify election results, but in Wisconsin, it plans on expanding into election education and combating misinformation, according to the Associated Press. Dane County Regional Airport launched their new terminal today, with the first flight scheduled to take off tomorrow. The new terminal adds 90,000 square feet to the airport. Construction started two years ago and has cost $85 million. The new area will include restaurants, a business center, and areas for children and service animals. The project now will enter its second phase with the planned demolition of the former south end of the airport. Last month, the legislature set aside $125 million to address PFAS pollution across the state. Now Republican lawmakers have laid out how they plan to spend that money, with new grants available for local municipalities and water utilities to test for PFAS. PFAS are a family of forever chemicals that have been found to cause or contribute to a litany of health issues, including cancer. The proposed plan would also require the Department of Natural Resources to collaborate with the University of Wisconsin system to research ways to treat PFAS in the water. The proposed plan does not account for any new positions in the DNR, which would be responsible for administering the grant programs. Sampling from the State Department of Natural Resources found that Madison's Starkweather Creek had the highest concentration of two main PFAS chemicals, PFOA and PFOS, in the state. A new report from the United States Department of Labor found that Wisconsin's unemployment rate continues to be significantly lower than the national average. Unemployment is low across the state, with rates below the national average for both rural and urban counties, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The Madison metropolitan area reports the lowest unemployment rate at 1.6% of the workforce. The national average is 34 Low unemployment rates have led to higher wages, with the average weekly wage increasing from last year by more than 5%, with gains especially fast in manufacturing jobs. A Madison police officer was arrested last month after being found by sheriffs in Dodge County with a loaded gun and the smell of alcohol on his breath after a crash, reports Channel 3000. The officer, who the Wisconsin State Journal reports has since resigned from the department, has been charged with operating a firearm while intoxicated, along with a first offense OWI. That information was obtained following internal police conduct reports from the Madison Police Department. And those are today's headlines. Health experts have been sounding the alarm over negative health outcomes for new mothers in the United States. 
That's, promote, that's prompted states to take advantage of federal incentives to extend postpartum Medicaid coverage, including in Wisconsin. Wisconsin policymakers have less than a month to adopt a new state budget. Advocates for extending postpartum health coverage through Medicaid hope it winds up in the final spending plan. Through the American Rescue Plan, states have the option to extend Medicaid coverage for new mothers for up to a year after they give birth. To receive matching federal funds, states had to create their own program for this benefit. Dr. Jennifer Krupp of SSM Health says the current 60-day coverage window puts too many new mothers at risk for serious medical complications, such as hypertension disorder. When we only see them for two months because that's all the coverage they have, we really can't make sure that all of their needs are being met to control their blood pressure. She says depression is another chronic problem that could affect outcomes for both the mother and child if left untreated. That's because the condition limits the mother to tend to her health needs while impacting bonding with her newborn. The proposed Wisconsin extension has bipartisan support, but it's unclear if it will be included in the Department of Human Services section of the budget. Ann May Minichiello is a UW Health pharmacist and American Heart Association volunteer. She says the issue is near and dear to her because she developed a rare form of heart failure after the birth of her daughter. She says she was lucky to have health coverage, noting the lengthy follow-up that was needed to avoid a dire outcome. I had to have several echocardiograms, you know, months and like years and annually still, even though this incident happened about six years ago. So if I didn't have that follow-up, yeah, it could be very fatal. Her experience inspired her to speak up for women who need that extended coverage so that more lives can be saved. Efforts such as this come amid recent CDC data showing alarming trends when it comes to the nation's maternal mortality rate. But rates have grown considerably higher for black women. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. The Madison Police Department has begun a pilot program to use third-party company to transfer mental health patients to the Winnebago Mental Health Facility in Oshkosh. Police say contracting out the transports could save on labor and the city money. WORT producer Nate Carlin has the story. The Madison Police Department is now using a third-party service to transport people involuntarily committed to the Winnebago Mental Health Facility. The department plans to run the pilot transfer program through the summer months to test the new policy. For the pilot program, the city has contracted with the Green Bay-based transportation service Ready Transports, which operates police transports for other departments across the Midwest. Located near Oshkosh, Winnebago is the only state-run psychiatric hospital. Until now, transporting people to just outside Oshkosh required two police officers to make the trip per patient. Each drive takes almost four hours round trip, soaking up police time and city resources. Assistant Chief of Police John Patterson oversees support and community outreach. He says that the department is looking forward to keeping those officers closer to home. We know we'll reduce almost four hours uh, in police time committed to emergency detention process on the back end. So um, they're very lengthy processes each time they occur. They can take double digit in the amount of hours of officer time to, to complete from start to finish. So for each time historically that that's happened in recent years, it's been two police officers out of service for those transports and unable to field other calls in the city. So from just uh, reducing our workload and the impact that these types of incidents have on our, on our staff time, I'm already looking at that as an as a obvious win. 
The decision to turn to a third-party contractor for transport was mostly a budgetary one, driven by the Common Council. In last fall's budget, the city set aside $50,000 to pay for the pilot program. Patterson says he hopes the program will have other positive outcomes as well. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis that, you know, a two-hour-plus drive in secure police custody may not be a great way to end that experience of, of being involuntarily committed. So I hope that it's a better experience. At the end of Madison's pilot program, the police department will report back with the projected savings the program could bring long term, as well as a qualitative analysis of how well the transport service went. The council will then review the results of the pilot program and decide if they want the program to be a more permanent part of the police budget moving forward. Last year, Brown County suspended their contract with Ready Transport following a prisoner escape at the Chicago O'Hare Airport, according to reporting from the Green Bay Press-Gazette. The prisoner had been accompanied by a lone driver and had managed to elude him in the crowded airport. The county found that Reddy had erred in assigning the transport only one driver. Reporting for WORT News, this is Nate Carlin. This Wednesday marks the anniversary of the arrest of activist Homer Plessy. On June 7, 1892, Plessy was arrested for refusing to leave the white passenger train car for the designated black car. His arrest led to the Supreme Court case Plessy v. Ferguson and the separate but equal doctrine that ruled until 1954's Brown v. Board of Education overturning it. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has this remembrance. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Wednesday, June 7th, is the anniversary of the arrest of the activist Homer Plessy for violating the Louisiana Separate Car Act. The year was 1892. The arrest led to the Supreme Court case Plessy v. Ferguson, which enshrined separate but equal into the nation's justice system until the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education case. Plessy's courageous act of defiance, though refusal to follow the state's law for non-whites to sit in separate cars from whites on passenger trains, was planned in advance by the Comité Citoyen, a group of biracial citizens in New Orleans. The English translation of the group's formal name is Citizens Committee to test the constitutionality of the Separate Car Act. The group acted in collusion with the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, which opposed the extra cost of operating separate cars. Most of the committee's members were not freed slaves, but a group of free people of color, of so-called mixed race. They were born free and had some rights. As of 1860, they could own property and businesses, some even enslaved people. Many had fought for the Union in the Civil War, but they couldn't vote, hold public office, sit in juries, or send their children to public schools. The Citizens Committee was led by Louis Martina, the editor of the New Orleans Crusader, the city's newspaper for Creole and black neighborhoods. Martina was the key member of the group. Without him, there likely would have been no case, no fundraising, no sustained protest of the legislature's law for separation. Martina was a typical member of the group. He was the son of a European man who bought an enslaved person's freedom to marry her. Martina was well-educated, ran a newspaper, was politically active, and advocated for equal rights, yet his own rights were curtailed. He recruited a committee member, Plessy, 
Massey, a light-skinned shoemaker, to challenge the law. Martina approached Frederick Douglass for support, but Douglass refused, likely because the committee weren't really his people. That is, they were a biracial, relatively elite group, while Douglass was a former enslaved person, and they were likely to lose. Douglass didn't want to attach himself to a losing cause. Martina had few illusions of winning the case. He pushed the case for existential rather than strategic reasons. He approached Albion Turche, a flamboyant white lawyer, to take the case. Turche not only grew to take the case, but took it pro bono. Turche was perhaps the nation's most famous white advocate for civil rights. He was a public speaker, novelist, and newspaper columnist. He went south after the war to support Reconstruction. When he left 15 years later, after fighting the established order, one newspaper called him the most hated man in North Carolina. In white supremacist circles, that may have been not an exaggeration. He suggested a light-skinned man to challenge the law as the most likely way to gain sympathy from the court. Turche may have been in a bit over his head. He had had only two brief encounters with the Supreme Court, but he correctly analyzed that only James Harlan would dissent. Harlan grew up in a wealthy Kentucky family with 12 enslaved people. His father was the state's attorney general. He had joined the anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, know-nothing party. He supported the Fugitive Slave Act and states' rights. He fought in the Union Army, but to preserve the Union, not end enslavement. Harlan opposed early civil rights legislation, but after the war, he prosecuted the KKK and befriended Frederick Douglass. Most important, as the Supreme Court Justice Harlan reversed earlier states' rights views and staked out a lonely position, arguing forcefully for an expansive view of the 13th and 14th Amendments. He argued that these amendments were intended to extend the formerly enslaved people all the fundamental rights enjoyed by whites, and that they authorized Congress to prohibit private discrimination. He made similar comments in Plessy, arguing that the 14th Amendment didn't countenance segregation and that all distinctions based on color are constitutionally suspect. The vote ultimately went down to 7 to 1, with 7 Northerners supporting separate but equal, and the one Southerner dissenting. Harlan's views and those of the committee ultimately prevailed, but as Martina and Truche belatedly recognized, it would take the pressure of a mass movement to get a ruling in Plessy's favor. As for Hilmer Plessy, he pleaded guilty in state court. The committee paid his fine and disbanded. Shoemaking jobs declined, and so he became a laborer, warehouseman, clerk, and insurance premium collector for a black-owned company. He died on Sunday, March 1, 1925. He was 67 years old. There's a bronze plaque on his tomb in St. Louis Cemetery No. 1 in New Orleans, honoring his historical significance. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's Monday night. Do you know where your government is and what it's doing? It's time now for a preview of what's happening this week in local government. Brenda Conkle and ForwardLookout.com and Dylan Brogan review upcoming transparency improvements coming to the city government, challenges to property taxes, and shout out city planners. Joining us now, it's Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com to help us with what's happening this week in local government. And we'll start with Dane County, already in progress. It's the Personnel and Finance Committee, and they got started at 5.30. So, Brenda, yeah, tell us about what PFC's up to. They have an actually relatively short agenda for a change. Some of the things that are on there that might be of interest to folks, there's another assignment of lease out at the Dane County Airport. 
um, and there is window replacement at the city county building. Um, not a whole lot of exciting things. There are two budget amendments, one for the Office of Energy and Climate Change and another one to furnish the Department of Justice reform. Um, so it's a lot of routine items on this agenda. Let's skip now to Tuesday, and at 5.30, we have PP&J, the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. They have kind of a short agenda as well. They do. They'll be getting an update from the Criminal Justice Reform Initiative Subcommittee, um, and then they are going to um, be approving a lease with the Town of Middleton for the Sheriff West Precinct. Um, and there's some claims um, that they have to deal with as well. Okay. Well, what about on Wednesday at 5.30, we have the uh, Board of of health for Madison and Dane County. So this is a, a joint meeting. Um, that's going to be held at the Atrium Community Room uh, over there on Park Street. We have a couple um, ordinance amendments at the Dane County level. One is about on-site water treatment systems, and the other one is regarding facilities that they regulate for the Board of Public Health. So two different ordinance updates, and then they also have um, a couple of funds that they'll be accepting from the Wisconsin Department of Health Services for tobacco prevention. And also um, they're going to be collecting additional funds for the West Nile Virus Mosquito Assessment and Control Program. Um, so lots of small things going on on their agenda as well. Let's move on to the city of Madison on happening right now or already in progress. The Landmarks Commission uh, is meeting virtually to discuss looks like three projects. They do. They have a project at 719 Jennifer Street, um, which is uh, construction of an addition there. Um, they're also demolishing an accessory structure at 312 Wisconsin Avenue and then an alteration on the outside of 946 Spate Street. So at 530, and uh, we could have mentioned this in the Dane County section, but it's because it's the City County Homeless Issues Committee, and that's a virtual meeting at 530 that's already in progress. But um, looks like some important updates are happening. Yeah, there'll be... Um, getting your input actually for the upcoming budgets for both the city and the county and what kind of recommendations people might have so if you've got opinions you can should definitely uh tune in for that and then they are also going to be hearing some updates from the lived experience council and then they are discussing some possible recommendations for the budget um, after they get that input and then they are getting an update on the men's shelter and then Tuesday, we have the Common Council has a big meeting. Um, the Executive Committee gets it going at 4.30, and then the full body meets at 6.30. And it does look like they'll be having some kind of Juneteenth celebration or recognition happening at this meeting. So, yeah, what's happening with the Common Council Tuesday? Yeah, so that Common Council Executive Committee will be getting some uh, updates from the IT department. Um, actually, some kind of exciting things um, might sound a little nerdy, but it will help us with transparency in local government. They're getting an update on the 311 system, as well as some Legistar upgrades that they're going to be doing. And then when the full council gets going, they're going to be all about alcohol licenses. This is their annual meeting where they uh, look at all kinds of alcohol licenses. Um, they will be declaring Juneteenth uh, a holiday for the city of Madison. Also, the clerk's office later on will also have another resolution uh, declaring it a civic participation time uh, between Juneteenth and July 4th. Few other things that are on the agenda besides all those alcohol licenses. They also have a whole bunch of other licenses that they will be approving as well. Um, those are theater licenses, um, secondhand dealers, 
for jewelry and textbooks, as well as um, adult entertainment licenses and scrap and recycling motor vehicle salvage and solid waste hauler businesses. So lots of licenses going on. Um, it's that time of the year where um, they got to probably get them all approved before July 1st. Few other things that are on the agenda. Um, they are going to be actually upgrading the mobile home parks ordinance um, and approving the final report of the task force on farmland, farmland preservation. Yeah, I just saw that Dane County has the second most farmland in the state of Wisconsin. So despite our massive population increase, there's still a ton of farmland in Dane County. One might argue that has been due to good planning efforts by both the county and uh, the local municipalities within Dane County. Look at that, shouting out planners, <laughs> yep. planning well. Let's move on to the Wednesday, the 10 o'clock, the Board of Assessors. A long list of people are challenging their property tax assessments. So that's happening, right? So not much to add beyond that, but how does that typically work, that process? Um, well, when you get your property tax assessment card in the mail, they, they give you the process there, um, but you get to go in, you get to review the files, and then if you still want to challenge it, then you get to appeal to this particular committee and then they look and see if they want to change it. Sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down, sometimes it stays the same. So I've been looking at them for a while and trying to figure out a uh, pattern to it, and it, it's been a little bit difficult. So uh, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what's going on there, but um, they have it by different assessors too, and it doesn't look like there's any particular assessor that's better or worse than others um, or areas of town. Um, Usually there's quite a few of the larger businesses in town and LLCs that tend to be the ones that challenge it. But this one had, had a lot of homeowners on it. And, and so if it could be, I mean, does it, if you go in and say, hey, I'm challenging this, I mean, is it a 50-50 shot? It might go up, which would be the opposite of what you're asking. <laughs> you know, it probably depends upon uh, what kind of evidence you have or what the other properties around you have been doing. Um, so yeah, it, it's, uh, doesn't always go the way you want it to. Okay. Well, we'll wrap things up, um, this week by talking about the transportation committee, which meets at 5 PM on Wednesday. So yeah. Can we talk about what this important committee is doing this week? Sure. Um, the first thing they're gonna be talking about is they, um, had created two different transportation committees, um, and then they have put them back together. So we're gonna be talking about how they're going to handle all the things that are going to be on their agenda once their committees have been put back together. Um, that was approved a, a few weeks ago, um, and they're starting to implement that now. They also are looking for approval of transformation demand management fees. Um, and then they have a couple um, roads that they're looking at. There's some a reconstruction of John Nolan Drive, uh, as well as um, they're getting some updates to the land subdivision regulations um and then they're getting they're asking for approval for some funding for uh, vision zero team to do more safe streets work that they've been doing brenda conkle we just really appreciate you always taking the time to tell us what's happening in local government so we can all stay better informed so thank you brenda you're welcome Feature contributor Harry Richardson has two new movie reviews. One, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, is a realistic eco-thriller on several streaming services. 
and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, a new animated sequel as good as the original. Harry says its only drawback is the cliffhanging ending, setting us up for the third installment. Hey everyone, welcome back to Boom Talk. Today, teaching myself to make a homemade blasting cap. If this works, it'll be step one, making our own improvised explosive. That was a clip from the trailer for How to Blow Up a Pipeline, co-written and directed by Daniel Goldharbour. This is a fast-paced naturalistic movie whose title says it all. Seven very different 20-somethings band together to blow up a pipeline in the remote rural Texas desert. They all have personal reasons for their actions shown in individual flashbacks. Zichel Toll, Ariel Bearer, is a college student whose mom died in a freak heat wave. She can no longer sit in endless activist meetings to try to get corporations to divest from fossil fuels. She has come to feel it's too little too late. Theo, Sasha Lane, has developed a rare form of cancer caused by a childhood spent near Long Beach oil refineries. Her girlfriend, Alicia Jane Lawson, is bitter about losing her. Michael Force Goodluck is a Native American who sees his nation losing their land to the extractive industry. Sean Marcus Schreiber, Zizitel's college friend, doom scrolls on Twitter. Two Portland crust punkers, Logan and Rowan, Lucas Cage, Christine Froseth, crust punk, is considered an apocalyptic anarchistic music subculture. Initially, these two just seem focused on each other but come through in the clutch. The group's townie who cases the pipeline weak spots is Dwayne Jake Weary, a local farmer whose land has been forcibly seized by the government for the pipeline's construction. The film successfully builds up the tension, showing the process of making and setting up the explosives. The story builds to an overly optimistic conclusion. The group's goal seems to be to inspire others to join them, but that possibility is an open question at best. The movie takes its name and inspiration from a book by Marxist academic activist Andreas Malm. But Malm's book doesn't describe how to blow up a pipeline. It's a well-done primer about recent environmental direct action movements and their limited results. He makes a persuasive case that a militant violent wing was a necessary part of any modern social movement success, like the civil rights movement had Dr. King and nonviolence, but the protesters and King himself were often guarded by an armed faction. King, after his house was firebombed, kept loaded pistols in his house for self-defense. As a reporter at the time noted, there's a whole book about this. This nonviolent stuff will get you killed by Charles Cobb. It's high on my reading list. There's also Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, and the various urban rebellions that influenced vast changes. Mom's book is well worth reading. It also has a good section on avoiding despair. I recommend the movie and the book. I saw the movie at a screening sponsored by the Madison DSA, Radical Green New Deal Working Group, and Tempest. It's available on several streaming services. Now for a fun new animated movie that may be the film to beat this summer. My name is Miles Morales. I'm Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. And things are going great. That was a clip from the trailer for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, directed by Joaquim Dos Santos, Kemp Powers, and Justin K. Thompson. This is a great sequel, as good as the original animated feature. It sets a high bar for the planned third installment. Miles Morales, voiced by Shomik Moore, is now 15 and doing a precarious juggling act between being Spider-Man, school, and his home life. Miles soon has a new nemesis who at first seems almost funny. He can open up holes in space and other dimensions, 
but calls himself Spot. We first meet him trying to unsuccessfully rob an ATM machine. He is confronted by a clerk with a baseball bat, and then Miles, Spider-Man. Things become more serious with the return of Gwen Stacy, Haley Steinfeld, from another universe. This movie continues the idea of an infinite number of Earths in an infinite number of universes with an infinite number of spider people. Gwen, who has problems of her own, has interrupted her mission for the Spider Society to visit Miles. See last movie. The Spider Society is a group of spider people and other beings. We eventually see a dinosaur, a cat, and other amazing creatures. The Society is led by a brooding Spider-Man 2029, Oscar Isaac, and headquartered in a sprawling complex in a futuristic New York. The story's amazing animation gives each Spider-Man world a different artistic rendering. Miles' world looks like a classic comic book, whereas the Spider-Man India, Pavitor Prabhaktor Karansoni, looks like a fusion of New Delhi and New York. Through it all is wonderful music, and action, but even more important, a solid emotional core, with great storytelling by Phil Lord, Christopher Miller, and Dave Callahan. The only disappointment is that we have a cliffhanging ending, and we'll have to wait for a sequel. The original crew from the first movie assembles in the end. Nothing in the credits to see, though. No hints about the sequel. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for donating and, of course, to listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our reporters in training are Maria Brunetta and Elizabeth Walsh. Special thanks to feature contributors Brenda Conkle and Harry Richardson and to Dylan Brogan and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Thanks to Rory Sterling and Helena White for their on-air fundraising assistance this hour. Engineer Victor Calzoni got us on the news, got the news on the air tonight. Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Nate Weggehout is away this week and Nate Carlin produce this newscast. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Maria Brunetta. Up next is the most freeform show on the radio dial, the Access Hour, coming up after these announcements. Good night. And you are listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.